to the country before ever, not for a holiday or for any sort of work experience. A lot of South Africans come over for that kind of thing, but I've never been here before this. So, yes, my first tour to England. How has the experience been so far? It's been great. It, it really has. You know, it, it's everything that I imagined it would be and probably better. I will say that the weather, I mean, people have criticized me for complaining about the weather, but I come from a very warm place in Africa, and uh, although it is snowing in Johannesburg at the moment, but and, and I'm missing the snow, just by the way. It hasn't snowed there since 1981 or something like that, mm. which tells me probably a bit about how old I am. But in any event, um, it, it has, weather hasn't been great. You know, it, it has been a bit rainy, and even when it's sunny, there were two days in London where it hit sort of 30 degrees, like heaven for me. But weather aside, you know, it's been a wonderful trip. It's been great to, to see the culture, and, and a world city like London is something I've really enjoyed. And even the, the smaller towns, you know, Taunton, Canterbury, were just, just really lovely places and, and great to see, how, you know, how people live kind of on the side of the world. Worcester was probably my least favorite. Leeds has been great. It's really been a, a beautiful city, lots to see, lots to do. We've had a little bit of time off here as well. So, you know, from an experience point of view, I don't think I could have asked for better. Let's uh, get to the start of the tour where you had mentioned in an article for uh, Sport Live about the uh, smug attitude of some of the English media, insinuating as if South Africa were in England just to make up the numbers. Mm. What, what was that all about? Yeah, you know, look, I think that the series, um, the coverage of the series as a whole has, has actually been quite one-sided in the sense that been, there's been a lot of coverage uh, from an England point of view. And, and yes, you know, there have been times when it seemed like South Africa are some seventh-rate subcontinental side that just turned up to drink tea and walk the streets, which they're not. They're a quality, quality side. And, and look, I'm saying this as somebody who is not a fan of the South African cricket team or any cricket team. You know, it's my job not to be a fan, and I've, I've um, you know, ma- managed to, to, to maintain that up until now. So... I just don't think South Africa were really given their due. I don't think they were thought of as the class opponents that they've ended up being. You know, I, I think from a South African perspective, you know, a lot of the questions I got asked uh, when I first arrived here on a couple of the radio stations and even just, you know, by, by fans and, and other journalists were things like, uh, so do the South African public expect South Africa to win? Which really boggled my mind. You know, <laughs> what do they, they think the South African public expected? Look, I understand that South Africa have always been there and thereabouts. They go to a World Cup, they say, we're going to win, and then they come back with nothing. They've challenged for this number one ranking for the better part of the last two and a half years, and they haven't got there. Mm-hmm. So I do understand that they, they're sort of a second-rate, you know, always the bridesmaids kind of side. 
But to think that they didn't come here wanting and thinking that they could win with real belief and with real conviction, I don't think has always been fair. I think they've shown, especially in the Oval Test, that they can dominate a side that is ranked number one in the world. And they've shown great intent, great spirit, great togetherness, great competitive instincts. Um, and they really deserve their due. You know, unfortunately, as we go to Lords now, the Kevin Peterson issue is probably going to dominate the newspapers, the headlines, and, you know, Peterson himself has said something like, you guys, talking about the media, accuse me of grabbing the headlines, and poor me, why do you always put me in the headlines? He's really behaved like a little brat, hasn't he? And, and it's probably going to, you know, even if South Africa win that match, if the match is drawn and they go to number one, I wonder that it won't take some of the shine off, some of the spotlight off. You know, if they win, it's going to be a remarkable series victory and, and something that will be reward for six years of having not lost series on the road. So I hope that they get their due, you know, if they win. How has that uh, attitude towards the South African team changed since that whipping at the over? Has there been any marked change in how approached you or towards South Africa? Yeah, I think it probably has changed um, a little bit. It's, you know, they probably have sort of uh, recognized how good a side South Africa are. Um, you know, it, it is still very England-centric and England-dominated, and I, I found a lot of the lines of questioning, you know, even when England lost that oval match, haven't been, you know, why did South Africa win? It's more been why did England lose? But I think it has changed, and, and I think people can understand that um, th this team is really good. You know, this South African team is is probably as good as they've had. You know, we can argue about about teams from eras past, but as an inclusive team that have have encompassed, uh, you know, they're still not demographically representative, but they're certainly trying to be mm -hmm. to some extent. And, um, and and so people are starting to acknowledge that, I, you know, I don't know that it'll ever become the case. They're never going to be in England. They're never going to be in Australia. They're never going to be in India. They, they like Jacques Callis, actually. Jacques Callis, to me, the way that Jacques Callis is perceived in the media mm -hmm. uh, speaks a lot to the way the whole South African team is perceived. They're very, very good. And... Um, they don't, you know, they get sort of underappreciated and, and not talked about as much. But I don't really think that bothers them, to be honest. They have to do a job, and that's what they're doing. South Africa could not have gotten to a worse start to the tour, with Mark Boucher being lost to the terrible eye injury and Marshan Delanga being ruled out to back mm -hmm. issues. But they seem to have bounced back quite well. Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, um, the injury to Mark Boucher was horrific. It was an awful thing to see, an awful way for a very, very good career to end, and um, it, it, it was really dreadful in that it was going to be Boucher's last series, and, you know, for it to have ended that way is, is really sad, and, and it was a horrible thing to see. You know, I also think that, that people knew Boucher was, was coming to the end of his career. Obviously, nobody wanted it to end that way, mm -hmm. um, but I, I think they did very well in keeping it together. Graham Smith and, and Jacques Callis, who are Boucher's two closest friends, um, they held themselves together well, they held the team together well, and they moved on, you know, and that's what they needed to do. They actually, they needed to just move on. It, it sounds pretty harsh, but I think they did it really well. Marshall Delanger, you know, he was never going to play unless there was an injury to one of the quicks. It's sad for him. He's a young guy, excited, wanted to be a part of a tour to England. Unfortunately, he's had to go home with those back uh, spasms and back injury and that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, whether that keeps happening to him will be something cricket South Africa need to monitor because you don't want a young guy like Martian Delanga breaking down all the time. And this is not the first time he's been injured. 
So I don't really think Martin Delanger's injury would have had any effect on the squad. But certainly on him as a young player and on the plans going forward, um, it, it will have some kind of impact. And then, you know, from a replacement point of view, Eddie de Villiers has taken that role behind the, the stumps and he's been okay. You know, uh, I, I still think that South Africa need a specialist wicketkeeper and Tommy Tolakile is the man for the job. When he'll be introduced, you know, I don't really know. But um, bowling, as we can see, the bowling attack, they took 20 wickets on an oval track where England could only take two. So that says it all. You know, there are a couple of injury concerns going into Lords um, with Alvaro Peterson's hamstring, Graham Smith, Jacques is back. But there, is quite, there are still quite a few days before the third test starts. So should we be expecting South Africa to play the same 11 that they played at uh, Oval and Leeds? Yes, absolutely. You know, Jacques Callas' back is not a new issue. He's had a problem with spasms before. He seems to come right really quickly. The physiotherapist seems to know what to do to um, to get his back the way it should be uh, in as quick a time as possible. So he'll be fit. Alvira Peterson's hamstring needs about six more days to come right, and we've got about ten before that Lord's test, so he should be fit as well. And Graham Smith's knee, um, it is strapped but he seems to be coping with it. And, you know, perhaps if anything further needs to happen, it'll happen after the test series. So I would imagine he'll be fit as well. Now, the only thing I can actually see them changing, if they're going to change anything, would be bringing in that specialist keeper. And in a match that really you can't lose, uh, I don't think they'd want to do something like that. You know, I think we'll see the same 11. We should see the same 11 because they've performed well in the last two test matches. And um, that's that, really. So... You are expecting South Africa to be coronated as the number one in tests again? Um, no, I'm not. You know, England could win that loss. And then South Africa will have to stay number three, and they'll have to go and try and become number one in Australia. I'm not expecting anything. Um, it's a good England side. They've got 11 good players. Some will argue perhaps, you know, the bowling attack hasn't been what it should have been. Is talked up as the best attack in the world, and they certainly haven't shown that. Mm -hmm. But um, they're a good, they're a good side, and they're as good as South Africa. So um, I think you know we're, we're going to be in for a good match and and a, and a good contest. England want to hold on to number one. They're not going to say, "Here you go, take the number one ranking." South yeah. Africa want to be number one, and all they need is a draw. Yes, they they know that, but they've shown us in these last two matches that they don't just want to draw; they want to try and win. So hopefully they're going to be attacking, they're going to be aggressive, and hopefully England are going to be attacking and aggressive too. And whoever ends up number one at the end of the series, whether England keep it or whether South Africa take it, will be deserving number ones, and that's what we want as people who enjoy the game. And, you know, as, as, as people who enjoy competitiveness, that's what you want, a team that's deserving of being number one. Not to say, because I'm a South African journalist, I want South Africa to be number one. You know, that's just not the way it works. No, I'm not saying you want South Africa to be uh, number one. I'm saying... As from your perspective, should we be expecting South Africa to be number one? Because they have dominated in pretty much all facets of the game for the two tests. And England have an additional issue to uh, contend with, which is the KP issue. Look, to be honest, um, I don't want to be the person that says, yes, this is what we expect, and then that doesn't happen because nobody's got a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see the point of it, actually. I think on the 20th of August, we'll know who the number one team is. <laughs> and even then, South Africa will go to Australia after that and challenge for number one again if they're not number one on the 20th of August. I think the sort of point of debating those kinds of issues, really, that, that I don't really see what 
what value we could gain from that. I think we're going to have a good match, and the person who ends up number one will be deserving of being number one. Fair enough. Um, so, <laughs> okay, I have to ask you this. So, what's your take? Having been around the teams for now, what, three, four weeks, what's your take on the whole KP situation? You know, I've been hearing a lot of things from, from both sides of the story. So, I think that's a good thing in the first place, that, that there have been two sides. On the one hand, there's obviously that uh, Peterson himself wants to play in competitions like the IPL and like other 20-over leagues around the world. So he doesn't want to play necessarily all the series that England wants him to play. And he also wants to play T20 cricket without playing one-day cricket. And that's the kind of brief um, glossing over what, what his problems are. And, and then there's been the, the real issue of the ECB leaking uh, information in meetings that they've had, which were meant to be confidential meetings with Peterson, which is also wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think they've been wrong on both sides of the equation. I think Peterson has, has showed himself to be quite a selfish player. He showed himself to be the kind of person who thinks about himself and what's best for himself and not the team. And something Matt Pryor said um, a couple of days ago in a press conference really stuck with me when he said, the most important thing about this England team is that we are a team. And I don't know that a team has space for somebody who doesn't want to be part of the team, who thinks that they're bigger, better, and deserve more concessions than other members of the team. So it'll be interesting to see what England do. Do they keep him around because he's a brilliant player and has shown that? We saw it here at Leeds. He can turn the match, um, good innings, took some wickets, that kind of thing. Or do they say this team is more important? We need 11, 15-man squad and 11 on the field who are committed to being part of our team and part of our squad and who are all following, you know, pointed, pulling in the same direction, who are all wanting the same thing. If they, if they want that, they may have to say to Peterson, we're going to drop you, cheers, goodbye, and we won't offer you another contract. But if they see his value as being something that's completely irreplaceable, maybe he will get those concessions that he needs. I will tell you that I, I cannot see, and you can maybe tell me I'm going to be wrong in a couple of years' time, but I cannot see a South African player demanding these same things because the, the philosophy in the South African change room and, and among the men who make up the South African squad is different. Mm-hmm. I can't see one of them saying, I don't want to play for my country. I'll give you an example, actually. Fatu Plessis was due to play for Somerset in the, the Friends Life 20. Mm-hmm. So South Africa said, no, you can't go because we'd like you to captain the A-side against Sri Lanka A in a few unofficial test matches. Fatu Plessis, whether or not he wanted to do that, I don't know because I haven't asked him. But he ended up captaining South Africa A, knowing that it would serve his interests well if he wanted to play test cricket. He scored 100 in that one of one of the two test, unofficial test matches, and he's now part of the test squad. It, you know, he lost out on a couple of hundred thousand pounds or whatever the amount may have been, but he did what Cricket South Africa asked him to do. And I think South African players in general will tend to do that. You know, they don't have the same issues. The, the IPL doesn't clash with South Africa's home series. Mm-hmm. So in terms of having a window to play in a lucrative competition like the IPL, they've got that. Obviously, they don't play in the Big Bash because that does clash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they, the, the issues are different across across the two countries. One thing that was striking, of course, was that Kevin Peterson, when he left South Africa, said that politics played a big part in his decision to leave. And surprise, surprise, he found politics in England too. So I'll be very um, interested to see whether he thinks the politics in England are worse than the politics in South Africa. <laughs> You know, he seemed to indicate that the Lord's Test coming up uh, could be his last. And some of the uh, English journalists uh, tweeted saying that he may have, uh, he might as well have played his last test. Uh, what have you heard? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that is what I've heard, that, that he may have played his last test or that the Lord's test will be his last if, if the ECB don't boot him before he gets the chance to boot himself or that type of thing. Um, it would be sad, wouldn't it? Because he's a great player. Mm-hmm. So for that to happen wouldn't, wouldn't be nice in terms of cricket and certainly for England's future ambitions going forward. But um, for, for the better of, of a squad, you know, and, and, and for... For, sh- for telling someone that you've got to pull your weight with a team. You can't want to be an individual. This is not tennis. You're not Roger Federer. You're not Tiger Woods. It's not golf, etc., etc. Um, you, you know, maybe the, the England management will take a stand. I, I think it must be very difficult being, being them at this stage, perhaps being Peterson's teammates at this stage, being Andrew Strauss, who knows that there's an obvious distraction. You know, the distraction was there even before the series started. And, um, I think Strauss said something along the lines of whenever KT is in the headlines, he tends to come good with the bat or tends to score a lot of runs. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened at least. So maybe in some ways they're thinking, well, maybe he'll come off again at Lord's because of all the negative sentiment that surrounds him. Mm-hmm. He certainly sees himself as a victim. You know, he almost looked like his bottom lip was kind of quivering when he said, it's really tough being me in the England side. Mm-hmm. It's just laughable. I mean, is it only tough to be him? Or is it tough because it's him? Or has he made it tough for himself? And I remember the South African journalists afterwards, we all sort of said to each other, thank goodness he left, because we don't want to have to deal with that kind of thing. So it was um, it was certainly an insight into how another team works. You know, we've got our own problems in South Africa. We've had a bonus scandal, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there were days in the, which Herschel Gibbs called the click in his book, the days when Barcher, Callis, Smith, and to a lesser extent, David de Villiers controlled the team with... In, in a damaging kind of way. Mm. I think a lot of that has changed. So, um, you, you know, it, it's certainly been a, been a good insight into how things work in another, in another cricketing environment. All right. Changing tack. This is something that you wanted to talk about. Blogging versus journalism. Sure. What is the role of bloggers? Uh, what's the role of blogging? How is it uh, different from journalism? And from a journalistic perspective, uh, what do you see the uh, benefits and the drawbacks of having the other side, the bloggers? Look, it's a, it's a tough question because I think the, the prolific nature of blogging means that asking what is the role of blogging becomes a similar question to what is the role of having a discussion. You know, it, it's an avenue for people to express their, their views, and I think that's what's important to remember. It's an avenue for people to express their views, which doesn't necessarily make that a fact. Um, and, and it's a way for people to uh, spark debate, to spark conversation. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, that there's certainly, I've read personally, I've heard of blogs where the writing is of a very high quality. You know, uh, journalism, it's no secret that journalism is not going to make you a millionaire. It's also no secret that a lot of, of papers are hesitant to, to hire freelancers, um, budgets are tight, jobs may be disappearing. You know, we live in a tough economic climate. So, for people who, who want to write about something that they're interested in, blogs are a good a good way to do that. I think lines need to be drawn between um, the, the blogging and actual journalism. And I'm not saying they can't be the same thing. There are certain blogs which which you know will make very fine journalists. Certain bloggers who will make very fine journalists. But I think where the difference come in comes in is that as a professional journalist, there are certain codes and certain ethics that you have to stick to. Mm-hmm. Um, checking your facts is an example. Uh, certain styles that you write in would be another example. Uh, getting a balanced a balanced viewpoint on a story, so not just talking to one source, talking to many. 
And um, I'm not saying you have to go to journalism school to learn those things, but you certainly have to work in a rigorous environment, journalistic environment, to be able to to understand why those things are important, why you can't simply write Kevin Peterson's side of the Kevin Peterson story, mm-hmm. why you've got to write both sides of that story. Um, and, of course, bloggers are not held to those types of ethics because, well, I would imagine a lot of them don't have editors. Mm-hmm. Um, you self-publish, and, 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 and so they, they have the room to be creative. They have the freedom to express their own views, and I don't think that very often they'll have a, somebody checking besides for the natural checks and balances that come with people commenting and saying, oh, well, that's not correct, or have you thought of it this way? So I think there's certainly scope for both for both blogging and journalism, but, you know, perhaps there's, when a blogger becomes a journalist, then they'll end up learning both tools of the trade and and the kind of, well, the rules and the guidelines within which journalists have to stick. And I also think the, the reverse could be true, that, that journalists shouldn't be limited or, or are not limited to write creatively, to find interesting things to write about, to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be operating within the confines of the organization that they work for. Uh, you know, another example would be something like swearing. I don't think I could write, I wouldn't want to, but I don't think I could, I could write, um, you know, whatever I wanted to in, in terms of, of language, use of language. You know, you, you'd have to be careful on those types of things. Whereas other people are sometimes not held to those same sets of rules and sets of constraints. I think they can certainly coexist. Um, and I've noticed more and more bloggers crossing over and, want, and wanting to become journalists because it's exciting, you know, you, or it's perceived to be exciting. You go on a tour, um, you know, that is really hard work, I'll tell you that. Um, but you, you'll get to watch cricket in different countries. You'll get to, I suppose, interview players. Perhaps it's more difficult if you're not, not a recognized journalist, that mm-hmm. type of thing. And, and it, it would be interesting to see how that evolves in the next couple of years. Fantastic. All right. Um, on that note, I'll let you go. Great. Thank you, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, Fidos. Sure, wonderful. It was good, good to be on. Pleasure. We'll chat again soon. Yeah. Bye. Oh, just that one down the ground. This could be six as well. It's a big It's a Straight down the ground, almost into the dressing room. And that tells the story. What an innings this is. What are Eunice's being slaughtered? Couch Talk.